Crack open Ephesians chapter 13. We have quite a, uh, a lengthy sort of the portion of scripture to get through this morning, but it is the very exciting and on a baptism Sunday and an all too relevant portion of scripture, the, the crossing of the Red Sea of the Israelites out of Egypt. This is, this is the last chapter, if you will, of the, of the redemption out of Egypt. We know that there is a, there's a few sort of sections of Exodus that first is the redemption from Egypt, then there is God sanctifying the people to himself at Mount Sinai, and then there's other little bits of stories about the, the tabernacle and, uh, and uh, worship to God. But at this point, this is the last portion of God, the, the last time that we even hear of the Egyptians. They are, they are wiped out of Israel's history and uh, relevance to Israel after today. And so we will uh, be starting from, about, uh, ch- from chapter 13 and verse 17. Now, what we're not going to do is read the whole thing and then go back and recap. We're going to read it as we go. So we'll start now with Ephesians chapter 13, uh, verse 17. What did I say? Listen. Exodus. All right? Gee, man. That's why we do this together. See, participation. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, second book of the Bible, in case I confused you. Uh, Here's what it says. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and then return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle, or that might otherwise say uh, in their formations, in an orderly fashion. Now, what we, what we see already at this point is that instead of going out of Egypt up towards Canaan, which was the, the promised land, over, over sort of that shorter uh, uh, portion of land that would then lead to the promised land, instead of going the very obvious, uh, the very straightforward way, God, God leads them elsewhere. They, they sort of arc northeast and then eventually they're going to come back down south, go up a little north again, head back down south. And, and we have to wonder why, but the, 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 the reality is that, that even Exodus tells us is that the, the Philistines had, uh, had had armory and had uh, chariots that manned the highway. They were, they were fierce soldiers, and God simply knew, well, well, this is a great truth for us this morning, God knows his people. Amen? God knows how weak we are. God knows our, our proclivities towards sin and temptation. He knows his people, and looking out for his people, he doesn't send them right out of Egypt and into the flame of a battle with the Philistines, but instead sends them back down south. Now, one question obviously could be, This is the God who literally just thwarted the entire economy of all of Egypt. He's the God who, sorry to spoil it for any first-time readers, is going to open up a path in the Red Sea for his people. Would he not be able to thwart and destroy the Philistines in battle? And of course the answer is yes, he could have. But that is not according to his plan. The Philistines are going to be sorted out by God's judgment in battle in about 500 years from now in the time of King David, under his justice and his warfare. Their time is not yet. God's focus this morning is on Egypt and destroying that enemy. 
God's focus this morning is in getting glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians in a very specific way, and in so doing, inspiring the Israelites with faith in God's amazing wisdom and strength. God had one focus this morning, ruin Egypt, strengthen Israel, and so he simply bypassed the way of the Philistines. God's plan was better than the Israelites may have thought. Look at verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God's faithful presence among his people is a constant theme in the book of Exodus. And this is something that Joseph knew. If you aren't familiar, we started out the book of Exodus being reminded by who Joseph was. He was one of the 12 sons of Israel. He was the first one who was actually sold into slavery, sent off to Egypt, had a, had a terrible life except for the gracious hand of the Lord with him. And he actually ended up being made prime minister, right-hand man to the Pharaoh over all of Egypt. And through his wisdom and God's providence, uh, all the nations ended up coming to Egypt during the famine because of Joseph's wise planning and storage. Joseph's brothers, the, tribe, the, the, nation, the families of Israel, ended up coming to Egypt as well, and they lived in a beautiful land of Goshen under the prime minister and under the Pharaoh's blessing, but eventually they became too numerous, and the, the Egyptian Pharaoh enslaved them, and that's why they now need salvation from Egypt. But Pharaoh, Joseph, 400 years prior, had told the Israelites at the point of his death in Egypt, though he received a a mummified, a a royal burial, though he was preserved and though he he, he was buried in the land of Egypt, he knew by faith this is not our homeland. He knew according to the promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, He knew that God would visit the the Israelites and take them towards the promised land. And he said, 400 years before it happened, I know God will be here. I know God will take us out. And when he does, take my body with you so that I'm not the stranger buried in Egypt, but I am buried with my fathers in our promised land. It was an act of faith that God would fulfill his promises. Moses, the Israelites, they do that. There's historical, archaeological evidence of this, this, temp, this tomb being broken open and, 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 and a Semitic-looking person who was giving a royal, wed- royal burial was taken out at about the time of the Exodus. We, we find this in history for those who are willing to accept it. Many uh, secular scholars aren't. But what this also goes hand-in-hand hand with is the presence of God's smoke and fire with the people of Israel. God tells us Joseph knew the faithfulness of God. God confirmed his faithfulness by bringing the people out of Egypt. Thirdly, though, God was faithful to his promises because he was with the people day and night by his covenant presence in the pillar of fire and smoke that came down from heaven. This is what we call a theophany. This is not just that God gave them a symbol of himself. It's not just that he gave them a, a picture to look at and be reminded of him. In fact, the, the, the wording of, the, of, the, of the, the, the book is that it is the Lord in the midst of the fire. 
It is the angel of the Lord in the midst of the cloud, and he was with them in the smoke. So, so this was just like the burning bush of chapter 3. This was God's actual presence with them, visualized by a great tower of smoke going up to heaven during the day and a great tower of light that is sometimes called light and sometimes called fire. Hard to know exactly whether it was hot and giving off heat, we don't know. But this great tower of, it was one pillar, smoke during the day, uh, light slash fire when they needed the light. And this is to show us <coughs> that God was faithfully present with his people so that they could travel when others couldn't. Did you see that? That they could travel by day and night and get some good uh, uh, kilometers between them and their enemies. It was so that they remembered that God had met them and guided them. He did not command them to get out of Egypt, come find me. I'll be at Sinai. Get out of Egypt, come find me and, and, and make your way to me. But rather God in his grace redeems them by his own power and then meets with them immediately. He is their guide. He is their presence. And this is a great theme of God's covenant promises all throughout the Bible. God will be with us. This is... We spoke about this in Exodus 3 with the burning bush. Wherever we see the, the visualized theophany of God with his people, we should conclude that the Shekinah glory of God's manifestation is in fact God the Son. We're all good Trinitarians, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those times whenever God is made visible to mankind and his people, we should assume that it is God the Son in the burning bush. It is God the Son appearing to his people in Israel at this point through the pillar of fire and then the pillar of smoke during the day. And we know this because the same language of other, other Christophanies, right, of other times that God the Son appears to his people in the Old Testament, the language is the angel of the Lord. Not an angel with wings, but the language is the messenger of the Lord. That is, the one who represents God, and yet the text also calls him God. Well, we have a messenger from God who is himself God, or as John chapter 1 says, there's one God, no one's ever seen him, but God at his right hand makes him known. Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity, God the Son, and he was with his people in this day of the Exodus, via the pillar of smoke and fire. Now, now the great blessing of the new covenant and Christ's covenant and, and Jesus being our mediator, not just Moses, is that we have, even today, we have Jesus present with us as his covenant people, but not through smoke and fire. Sorry if you like candles and incense. That's not how Jesus is present with his people. Rather, Jesus is present with his people through the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. It's good that I go because then I can come back. I won't leave you as orphans. I'll be with you. The Father and myself will be with you in the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit. This is the great blessing of the new covenant that we enjoy. The Son of God is with his people through the Holy Spirit, indwelling us in our hearts, guiding us as he guided the, the Israelites, being present amongst us in all of our trials. God is a faithful God who presences himself with his people. I mean, go on, look at, look at chapter 14, which is now where we, we start out. <clears throat> now we, we sort of, uh, we get into quite an interesting little chapter of this exodus. Then Yahweh said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp in front of Piharioth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, 
they are wandering in the land, right? Now, so, so, so Israel is almost out of Egypt, and God says to the prophet Moses, they're going to hate you for this, stop, tell them to turn around and go back down south. And then what you want to do is, uh, Baal-Zephor and Migdol seem like a military term, so it's as if they've been told, go and camp outside their military base with the ocean behind you. All right, that's worrying for the, for the Israelites. Of course, as Moses, hearing that command, he's, he's wondering how he's going to dodge the rocks that are going to be coming his way. And so he does. They, they go back and they're about to uh, 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 go through, but God gives us the reason why he does this. In verse 4, sorry, verse 3, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, right, because he's hearing reports from his military bases, these guys are just wandering around like idiots. He's going to think they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Verse 4, God says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. You see, God is not only, we've, we've said this the whole way through the story of the plagues of Israel and Egypt, God is not only saving his people, he is also putting to open shame the leaders of darkness, Pharaoh, his gods, and the Egyptian army. It is not enough that God gets them out of Egypt. He wants to put the Egyptian powers to shame. And so he baits his hook, he throws it out, and Pharaoh swallows it hook, line, and sinker. God sends his people sort of wandering around in strange areas, and he knows Pharaoh's heart. He knows Pharaoh's theology, because in Egyptian theology, your gods might be strong one day, but they've got other god battles to fight. They've got other dark powers to battle, and sometimes they're more powerful in certain areas than others. So maybe this Yahweh God, who is so strong in the plagues, who killed our children, who, who massacred our economy, who destroyed everything, maybe, maybe he's left them. Now, he couldn't be more wrong. He was with them by the smoke and fire. But he thinks that, of course, he's, got, he's left them. They've done something to annoy him. It's our chance to attack them. And so God, utilizing the, the false theology of Pharaoh, utilizing knowing Pharaoh's sins, and, of course, utilizing his sovereign power to harden Pharaoh's heart, he draws Pharaoh into the battle that he will surely, surely lose. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt. We don't know how many that would have been, upwards of thousands, with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Harioth by in front of Baal-Ziphon. They caught them. Pharaoh has taken the bait. He believes that he's going to uh, 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 get back this regrettable decision that he'd made, letting their whole workforce go. And it turns out that God isn't even with them anymore. They're wandering the desert. We can, we can definitely bring them back to us. It looks easy to him, but God was setting him up for a tremendous judgment. This is a sign for us or a lesson for us in 
our lives. It can look like to us on our timeline and on our schedule and on our budget, we, we can think that God is wasting time, wasting money, burning opportunities in our life. We can feel like God is taking way too long to restore the family relationship. Or God is, God is taking way too long to give me the opportunities that I think I want to be able to serve Him. Or, or God, is, God has allowed me before I was a Christian. He took so long to save me. Why did I wander back and forth all this time? Why? And of course the answer is because God's main aim in your life is not to give you conveniences or to help meet your goals. That's not God. You're not coming into a church this morning and hearing, bring your, bring your to-do list, bring your, bring your wish list, bring your prayers to God, claim it, believe it. He's going to say yes and amen to everything. Just come and give, maybe give an offering to really secure that promise of God, and He'll give it to you. That is not at all biblical. It is extremely unbiblical. It is idolatrous and blasphemous. What God does is He looks at us and sees people owned by Him, What does he look, what does he see when he looks at the Israelites? He sees people that he purchased by the blood of the Lamb. People that he redeemed by his strong arm out of Egypt. People that belong to him. They are not their own. They were bought at a price. And how much more so over the people of the church today? Don't ever come to God expecting and demanding or or maybe in your, your hard hours being so frustrated that God is taking a long time to achieve what you think would be best. Of course, we all struggle with that. As a church leader, I struggle with that. But we need to remind ourselves the main aim of God in history and through all of his works is to get for himself maximal glory through his son. And he often does things that we do not understand. He often does things that don't make sense until they're completed. He often does things that leaves us confused intentionally so that after the fact, or in heaven, we look back and say, God did all things well. He got for himself the glory he deserved. And that, for a true Christian with a regenerated heart, is the best news of all, that God gets the glory that he deserves. God is the ultimate why to every struggle. Why this? Why that? Why is this happening? So that God gets his glory. So we've seen here that Moses has chased the people and and now they're about to come up over the hill and see the Israelites encamped in their millions on the side of the sea in front of the military uh, military, uh, buildings. Look at verse 10 of chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, now we need to, this is an understandable fear, it's not commendable, it's not good, but it is extremely understandable that you've got slave people malnourished through the years of mistreatment, elderly people, children, and then a bunch of animals, men without fighting swords or any fighting experience and then you've got 600 plus thousands more of the chariots of Egypt which was one of the greatest fighting armies history has known definitely up until the point of the exodus the superpower this is this is like going swimming thinking you've escaped and you're out on the beach and then you see American naval ships pulling up, cracking out all of their cannons, aiming directly at you as jets fly overhead with missiles ready to drop. That's what this felt like. They were sitting ducks, surrounded by an army, ocean behind them, sure that they were just about to become red paint for the desert floor. They were very afraid. They cried out to the Lord. 
Verse 11, look at verse 11. They said to Moses, it's because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness. Is that right? What have you done to us in bringing us up out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. (laughs) There is no record of them ever saying that. That is a dumb idea. They never said that. They said, we're very happy to be rescued. We would love to stop being... This is just... This is spiritual leadership. This is church leadership. This is ministry This is leadership of almost all sorts. People who have no clue come up with terrible ideas way too late and blame you without any thanks. (laughs) Moses, what'd you do this for? Do what? I I didn't call them out. Well, isn't this what we said to you back in Egypt? No, it wasn't, but go on, that we should have just stayed and been slaves. You never said that, and that's a dumb idea. Sit down. And Moses is just hearing all of these ridiculous complaints. Look at the end of verse 12. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You would have died under the Egyptians. What are you talking about? Anyway, verse 13 is the best, one of the best leadership speeches in the Bible, in all history. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. He says, fear not, but since they are fearing and coming to him afraid, it should literally be translated, shut up. Stop it. What is your problem? Fear not. Sit down. Zip your lips. Stand firm. He's, he's going to eventually tell them to start marching. But, but I love the, the firmness, the, the, the single-minded, flinted-facedness that he calls the Israelites to. Stand firm. Buckle up. Put a cup on. Put your mouthpiece in. God is going to do something amazing right now. Just, just watch. I'm not calling you to run. I'm not calling you to get your swords. I'm not calling you to do anything. God will be here with his people. Has he not displayed that? Fear not. Stand firm. Watch what God does. And then he says... These Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. And basically, the, the other way it could be translated is, you will not see them again because you see them today. In other words, he's saying, God said, he'll, he'll bait Egypt, Pharaoh will come out, and then he'll get his glory over them. So the fact that you see them today means God is about to get his glory over them in fulfillment of his prophecy. Delight when you see tribulation in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecies. Delight when you see enemies rear their head against the church, which we're told is going to happen, for now is just another opportunity for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, to stomp his feet, to swing his sword, and to get his own victory. Do you see how confident Moses is at this point? And then he turns to God, having not consulted him yet, and says, please don't waste that speech. (laughs) He does not know what is actually about to happen. That was all on faith. I want to call it a bit of a bluff, which is 30% of leadership. He he just, hey, it's going to be fine. Please make this work out, Lord. Look at at what he he, he prays. He goes uh, to the Lord. Verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Another reminder, shut up. That's what you do. That's your best service to the Lord right now. Stop complaining. The Lord will do the fighting for you. And then the Lord said to Moses, so we're assuming he's gone to speak to God now. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? What? (laughs) That doesn't seem fair. Moses has just defended the Lord to the people. He's just riled them up for a a great defense and faith in God. and, And God sort of rebukes him. Like, What are you saying about me? Right? 
Another lesson in leadership, of course. Why do you cry to me? Not a great start. But of course, God is speaking to him as a representative of all the people. So God's not being short-tempered with Moses. He's saying, tell the people this. Why do you cry to me? Why are you afraid? How many of the plagues were your people harmed in? None. How many of the times that I made a promise did I not fulfill it? None. Why are you afraid, he says. And Moses is told, uh, going on in verse 15, tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel then may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and sorry, the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. What an amazing command of God right there. God is going to get his... Verse 19. Then the angel of the Lord, while God was still speaking... The angel of God, who is himself God, who is pictured as a, as a pillar of smoke at the moment. The angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there, were, there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without coming near the, the other, without one coming near the other all night. Basically, God is speaking to Moses saying, lift up your, your, your staff, stretch it over the waters. I'm going to split it. You're going to go through on dry land. The Egyptians are going to chase you, but not yet. The angel of God in the cloud moved behind them and became a darkness over Egypt. And as the sun had now set, this is evening time. It's just coming into nighttime. And as the chill sets in over the water, it is light and warmth to the people of God. He's setting this division and distinction between his enemies that he will destroy and his, his people who he is, is uh, 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 saving. Look, look at uh, chapter 14, verse 26. Uh, sorry, verse, uh, uh, verse 21. Then, in obedience to what he was just commanded, while God divided the Jews from the Egyptians, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea uh, and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided it's it's at this point that people's just they sound like idiots like they often do when they start trying to explain the bible without any miracles there's this old story of a, of a liberal uh, a professor from america a theological professor liberal meaning they don't believe the bible has any miracles Right? It's, it's mythology, it's sort of made up. This story was stretched over the years. And, and then, you know, actually, it does, it's not the Red Sea. It's supposed to be the Sea of Reeds, which is a small, short river, only six inches deep that had marshes in it, the, 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 the reed marshes. And, and so he's preaching on the Exodus and teaching this African-American community in, South, in the southern states of America. And this professor's teaching, and, and he reads that portion of the story, and a man stands up the back and says, Hallelujah, it's a miracle. The people of God through on dry land. And the, and the professor says, no, frustrated, that these, these, these plebs don't know the reality. Because no, don't you know there's no such thing as a miracle? They walked across on what was in fact just six inches of water. That's all that happened. The African fellow thinks for a moment, cries out again, hallelujah, the Egyptians drowned in six inches of water. What a miracle. 
This is a story of God's redemption, and any kind of other way to try and play this is absolute folly. It's going to tell us that they walked through, look at the next verse, the people, chapter, verse 22, of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and a wall to them on their left. This word for wall is not a small uh, uh, retaining wall. This word for wall is like the walls of Jericho, these enormous fortresses set up to, to buttress a city. They are enormous walls on either side of them as they walk through on dry ground. This, this enormous gathering of upwards of a million people. We learned last week 600,000 men of fighting age, meaning many wives, many grandmothers, mothers, fathers, old men, children, plus all of their animals marching. This would have been an enormous separation. And, and the passage doesn't say that the wind blew all night and then it opened. It says basically that the wind was blowing and as soon as it stopped, it's going to cave in. So, so God sends this wind and almost immediately there is this division of the water. It's going to take them all night until sunrise for the whole congregation to move across. Some sections of this sea that they might have crossed would have been 20 kilometers, a couple of hours walking. Others of them might have been uh, two kilometers, not, not quite that far, but, but for the whole procession to move through, it would have taken all night and God is going to be blowing this east wind across. Arabia into the Red Sea to dry it and move it aside. And even though he uses the wind as a tool, it is still an amazing, glorious miracle. One of the Bible's greatest stories of redemption, especially in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen. It seems that Pharaoh with his foot soldiers stayed back on the other side of the river of the sea and sent his riders into the sea to kill all of the all of the Jews. Pharaoh's not going in, the foot soldiers aren't, but all of the riders are going in as the people of God are now scurrying across and rushing uh, <clears throat> through. And uh, it, the, the the cloud that was once separating them, 1 Corinthians 10 says that. The people of, uh, of Israel went through the waters under the cloud. It's that once God got his people into, the, into the, the path, he then stopped separating them and went over them, going with them through the, the parted Red Sea, so that now the Egyptians were able to pursue them to their own peril. Look at verse 24. And in the morning, so, so it's sunrise now. We, we saw the, the, the waters split at sunset. Now it's morning is coming. And in the morning watch, that would be the last few hours of darkness, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging the chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. The, 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 the thin wheels of the chariots coated with brass would have been penetrating the, the ground and becoming quite a, a difficult ride. They were, they were confused. They were worried because of the Lord's panic. And, they, and the Egyptians said, halfway through verse 25, the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. How long did it take you to figure that one out? You think? Is he fighting for the Israelites against the Egyptians? Amen. Hallelujah. He is doing exactly that. <clears throat> God will this day get his glory for Israel over the Egyptians by using nature, by destroying Pharaoh's armies, and by showing himself the covenant God of Israel. They are not going to be allowed to run. 
God didn't let the Israelites run away. He gave them away through the water. And he's not going to let the Egyptians run away because they are going to face the judgment that they deserved in quite an ironic way. For generations, they've been throwing Hebrew baby boys into the rivers. For generations, they've been killing Israelites and whipping them to death. And today, God is going to throw all of these strong fighting men into the rivers to drown. He is going to kill them as they have been killing his firstborn son, Israel, which is the name that he used a few chapters ago. Look at verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning had appeared. Moses had, had, had seen and witnessed all of the, the Israelites come out of the, of, the dry, of the dry land of the Red Sea and are now on the banquet. They, they would have been looking down onto this, this miraculous valley filled with Egyptians and maybe they wondered what's going to happen. Maybe it was fairly obvious to them, but God commanded, now that Israel is safe, stretch your arm out again and I will send the waters back over my enemies. And then as a summary statement, it says... In verse 27, and as the Egyptians fled into it, Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on ground through the sea, on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and a wall to them on their left hand. How great And miraculous and amazing is the salvation of God here on this day in the tremendous exodus uh, through the Red Sea. (laughs) They stood firm as they had been commanded and they saw the salvation of the Lord. And God accomplished his glory over Pharaoh, that weak king, over a powerful nation that couldn't even catch a bunch of cornered, escaped, starving slaves with thousands of chariots. That's what God did to Pharaoh. God got his glory over Pharaoh, the foolish king who worshipped weak demons, who thought that he could best the one true God and was played mightily for his folly. This king who lost his economy, lost his son, and now lost his army and eventually lost his soul. There is a greater damnation that is all the more eternal that awaits Pharaoh and every king who rebels against God's law. And in fact, everyone who follows such examples and refuse to come to the Lord God, the one true God, in repentance and in faith in their salvation. And that damnation is not the drowning in the Red Sea. It is the drowning in the eternal lake of fire that the book of Revelation tells us about, the valley of flame and of punishment, the valley of torment that Jesus speaks about, the unending fire where the worm doesn't die, as Paul mentions. This is the judgment due and owed and deserved by every single one of us. The Christian receives, receives, a blank, receives a, an allowance when you get saved to just be extremely honest. You don't have to defend yourself anymore. You don't have to try and make yourself sound better. Every one of us who know the Lord Jesus as Savior, confess openly, I deserved the hottest, terrible, most tormentuous hell that could be imagined. That was what I deserved. But Jesus drank it for me. But Jesus was killed in my place for my sins. But anybody who does not know Jesus, who, who has not repented of their sins and their idolatry and their 
folly, who has not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, you are just like Pharaoh, you are just like his armies who have tried to rebel against his purposes and have been, will be judged. You're under judgment now. God is throwing you into a panic. God is making your life drive difficultly like, a, like an Egyptian chariot through the mud. God is against you, but God is for you in the sense that he offers you Jesus Christ. And if you do not take it, you will be drowned in the eternal, unending punishment of hell that every sinner deserves for our rebellion against a good and gracious God. That is what the, the Red Sea salvation that we've looked at today and the Red Sea judgment ultimately points to. Not a lesson for your Red Sea moments in life. What, what relationship for you is like a big Red Sea, call on God and he'll split it. What employment situation for you is a, is a Red Sea and, and God need, God's going to partner with you to split it and get you to walk right over it. What, what situation for you is like the Egyptians chasing you and God's going to oppose them and no weapon formed against you shall remain. This is not primarily an application of what to do when you get to a difficult moment in life any more than it is maritime advice. For the next time you need to get your dodgy triton across a, a, deep, a deep river while you're, while you're four-wheel driving. You can't just pick a stick and go and stand over it. That would be a, a, a misplaced application needed, Mitsubishis, but uh, uh, I drive one, it's all good. Uh, but not at all, not at all biblical, just, just as if I would say, what situation do you need God to split? No, the, what, what the Red Sea salvation and judgment points to ultimately is the salvation that God brings, not through Moses, but through Jesus Christ. That God has, seeing us in our sin, written to tell us, and we acknowledge that there is a tremendous chasm between us and only he can condescend, only he can solve it, only he can part the problem, only he can solve the terrible situation that we find ourselves in. That's what this points to. There's a couple of factors of this story that remind us of the gospel. First of all is the frustration and putting to shame of God's enemies. Just as God drew out Egypt so that he might put him to shame in judgment, God also seemed to bait the hook for the devil in such a way as to put him to shame as he tried, though foolish it was, to oppose the purposes and the gospel and the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that God has disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is not... Old, this is not the biggest thing that happened in the cross. The, the biggest thing that happened in the cross is our sins being punished for us. And yet, this is an element that God, in the cross, in this sign of apparent weakness and bloodiness and disgust, it was actually that which was putting to shame every demonic power. Every satan satanic attempt to overthrow God was beaten with a naked man on a cross. He put them to open shame. And in his powerful resurrection from the dead was like the pouring of the water onto the enemies of God. They have no grip on him anymore. They are, they, are just, they are separated from the Lord Jesus Christ. Death, sin, Satan, hell are so far removed from the Lord Jesus Christ, more so than the Israelites in Egypt were separated. Jesus is now in eternal glory. Jesus is now in indestructible life. Jesus is now on the throne, not walking around on earth in a humble and meek state. Jesus has, has brought out a victory and ashamed the enemies of God in the spiritual places. But also we see an element here in the salvation at the Red Sea, the reality of being saved by faith and not of works. 
This whole account of God's redemption from Egypt has shown us that the Israelites were passive receivers who had only to listen to God's promise and then they would be saved. God, continually throughout this passage, shows us and reminds us explicitly, I'm the one doing the saving. You are the saved. You are the receivers. I am the the, the bringer of salvation. Every bit of effective salvation from first to last has has been God's work. And this reminds us of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is a gift for what you do not deserve, a gift from God that he has done everything and you merely receive. To you who have received salvation and fear losing it, to you who desire salvation but fear whether or not sin and hell will swallow you whole, fear not, stand firm and see the work that the Lord has done in your salvation. We're not waiting for anything to happen for you to be able to be saved. Fear not, stand firm, have faith, believe, and look to what God has done in the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has not saved you from slavery to Egypt, but offers salvation from slavery to sin, to the dominion of sin over all of your life. He does not save you It is not the claim of Pharaoh that he has over your life that condemns you. It is rather the claim of the condemnation of the law against our souls because of our sin. That's what Jesus saves us from. Jesus' salvation does not save you from being drowned in the Red Sea. He saves you from drowning under the wrath of God against us for our sin. Our salvation is not by Moses lifting up his hands over the sea. Our salvation comes from Jesus Christ's hands being pierced and stretched out over a sea of sinners on the cross. Jesus' salvation is not by walking across on dry land. Jesus' salvation is not that you get to the desert of Arabia. Jesus' salvation is that you walk through and receive salvation, eternal life, eternal glory, and the inheritance of Christ given to you. And it is by faith only. He does not command. God does not look at any sinner. Maybe, maybe you know today you're playing church, you're faking Christianity, you're living in sin, and you're unrepentant. Maybe you don't even pretend. You just know you're unsaved. What does Jesus have to say to me? What do, what do I need to do to be saved? I don't want to drown. I don't want to be judged. I don't want to be condemned. God commands you today to give up your doing. Give up any notion that you need to do anything for God and simply relax, rest, sit, bank, trust yourself into the promise of God that Jesus has done everything and that you are unable to do anything and that he would be pleased, he would love to redeem your life and commands you to trust that. Believe that and you this day will be saved. No list of doings, No no demands that you have to fulfill trust. Jesus says this, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It is that quick. You believe you have eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ on offer for anybody who is condemned by your sin. 
And the last thing that we see today on a baptism Sunday is how God uses the imagery of passing through and under water for the, for the sign of salvation or the symbol of salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that the Israelites at this point were baptized into Moses. What's being pictured is that entering into the water, there's a picture of being washed clean from the old dirt and grime of the old life. Now they're clean, belonging to the Lord. Going to go meet him on Mount Sinai. There's a picture that they are being cut off from their past life and, 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 and habits and disciplines and sins. They're being cut off. That life is now dead in the ocean and beyond and they are alive to God, so now to obey. There is a sign that being that baptized into Moses basically means they came under his leadership. They identified themselves with him. Whatever God gives to him, we want to be a part of, he represents us. That's what baptism means. And so today, as we celebrate baptism, we see the same things. The baptism, somebody going in and under the water, is a symbol of being washed that our souls have been washed by the blood of Christ, and so we get into the water. Nothing magical about it. Simply a, a symbol that the Holy Spirit uses in this moment to remind us that we are washed. It's also a sign that we have been cut off. The language of Romans 6, Paul said, is you are now dead to the world. Jesus was buried and raised. You are also buried with him and raised. And so you were buried in the water and you come up again. This is, this is like the Egyptian salvation. Through the water and back up. You die to the old life, it is cut off from you, and you are up. And just as they were baptized into Moses, so also we, by immersion and faith, are baptized into Jesus Christ. He went into the grave, that represents me. He died for sin, that represents me. He rose to new life, he took my soul with him. He is now at the right hand of God, blessed, kept forever, permanent, eternal life so also my soul is with him. Whatever blessings God has to give to my older brother Jesus come down to me as well as a son or daughter adopted into Jesus Christ. That's what baptism shows. But the overarching message of all that we have to know today is that by faith you receive the promised salvation of God. Have you believed in Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, this is one of the most well-known, one of the most frequently quoted, frequently referred to points of the Old Testament, your amazing, powerful redemption out of Egypt, over Egypt, through the Red Sea, and onto dry land for your covenant people, and you were with them. Father God, we give to you what, what you demanded you deserve because of this act. We give you glory. We recognize there is no God like you. There is no royal king like you. There is no power in the world like you who divides the Red Sea and saves your people from Egypt. But Father God, we thank you even more so that we have a great salvation, a great redemption that we can look on and know for sure that salvation is finished and purchased for us. We thank you that while we were weak, you sent Jesus Christ. While we were slaves, you sent your son. While we were dead, you sent him to give us life. And we thank you that by his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, that we have the, all that we need. We have full confidence to be able to approach you and say, please give to me all that belongs to Jesus. Please identify me with Jesus. Please make him my savior. Please make him my king. Please make him my representative. And Lord, for anybody who calls out on, on the name of the Lord Jesus to save them, you promise in your word over and over again, they will never be put to shame. 
They will never be, be embarrassed of their faith. Uh, they will never have cause to regret it. They will never be judged, for Jesus was judged for us. Father God, I ask that you would increase our assurance, increase our faith, give to us a boldness to stand firm in the evil day. And Lord God, would you receive today great glory as souls give their trust, as, as unbelievers believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time today. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.